This is the 966, episode 27. Richard, we're on fire, Mabruk. Ah, you can't stop us now. (laughs) This week, we have a tremendous special guest with us, Saudi businessman, philanthropist, longtime friend of my co-host, and Richard, I think a fair description is Renaissance man, Mr. Amr Khashoggi, who is joining us from Jeddah. Amr, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thank you for having me, and thank you for all these accolades you're throwing at me, being a Renaissance man. I'm, uh, I'm Thank you. <laughs> well, it's true. As you just mentioned, we were just chatting. You're, you're, you know, you're learning another, another language. You know, you're just in your spare time. You're learning French. But, and uh, Lucian's right. We've known each other a long time, and, and I've always admired uh, your business acumen, Omar, and, and and also your common sense approach to policy and social issues. But what I really admire is the energy and sort of joie de vivre. You, there's some French for you. you know, that'll that'll be in your. Duolingo, uh, joie de vivre that you bring I mean, to, to you bring to everything. I mean, it's really a gift. And I, I've watched you, you know, over the years. Yeah, I watched you bring this positive energy to to so many things. I mean, beginning with the Jeddah Economic Forum to your involvement with the uh, Young Presidents Organization, CIT Committee for International Trade, the Next Generation Project, Kadarun. I mean, on and on. And it's it's a gift. So we're we're, we're delighted you can join us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you and to walk through this journey with you. On today's episode, we'll be talking about some interesting developments in the mining and minerals sector in Saudi Arabia, the Saudi IPO market, which is about as hot as Jeddah in July and so much more. But before we get started, my usual standing on ceremony. Thank you to all of you who have subscribed, um, especially on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. It's really cool, Richard, to see our numbers growing there. Very exciting. New faces each week. Shukran to all of you. Um, let's get started, Richard. What's your one big thing this week? My one big thing this week. Um, later this week, Al Dawa Medical Services, uh, one of the largest pharmaceutical retail companies in Saudi Arabia, will list 25.5 million shares on the Saudi stock market, the Tadawa, uh, seeking to raise about 500 million. Al Nahdi Company, Al Nahdi Medical Company, which is the which is the kingdom's largest pharmacy retail chain, plans to seek about 1.3 billion in IPO in the next few months, in what could be the largest share sale in the kingdom since Saudi Aramco went public in 2019. Share, si- share sales in Saudi Arabia have seen huge investor demand in the past year, with most IPOs getting priced at the top of the offering ranges, and then the shares surging on their trading debut. The Saudi benchmark index has jumped about 9% this year, extending its 2021 gains of 30%. And if you're in the U.S. market now, you're looking at that and with great envy. Uh, while the Kingdom's Wealth Fund, PIF, uh, has been behind many of the biggest recent listings, an increasing number of Saudi family businesses are also capitalizing on soaring demand for stocks and testing the equity markets. The Stock Exchange's Chief Executive Officer, Khaled al-Hassan, recently commented that the pipeline for IPOs in the country is, quote, deeper than ever, unquote. Um, Amr, you've worked closely with a number of large, successful family-owned companies. Why, why are increasing numbers of Saudi family businesses uh, listing on the Tadawa? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a point of sustainability. Um, the, uh, as we all know, normally in family business, they tell you there is the founder who founds the business, uh, his children grow the business, and his grandchildren spend the business. Uh, so, and uh, if I remember my statistics uh, correctly, 
less than 5% uh, survive beyond the fifth generation. Um, the, today in the GCC alone, you have over the next 10 years, uh, what amounts to around $2 trillion in wealth that is going to exchange hands from one generation to another. 85% uh, of business in Saudi Arabia is uh, controlled and owned by family business. Uh, in order to make sure that uh, family squabbles and what have you not really uh, get in the way of, of the company or the business uh, surviving, uh, is to uh, take it public. Uh, taking, the, taking a business public is no easy matter because uh, you're required to put certain corporate governance in place, uh, there are lots of rules and regulations that control the business, and so no one individual or family member can uh, wreak havoc in that business. So, uh, so it is uh, one way also for for some of my family members who want to cash out or exit that business, they can. And also, uh, my my last point is that uh, it also kind of spreads the wealth and not have it only controlled in, in a small, uh, in the hands of a small number of people. That's, so that's always what I've understood, that that 5% is the, is the number I've seen in terms of, you know, lasting beyond that fifth generation. And you know, I mean, this discussion in terms of IPO and some sort of exit strategy and some way to preserve the family uh, enterprise has been going on for a long time. It seems right now that the, the access and the ease to get an IPO is, is better than it ever has been. Is that accurate? Of course, the market is up and it's, and it's, and it's enticing in that way. I think that the uh, stock market, the Dow, uh, and the CNA, the Capital Markets Authority, as well as, as uh, the Central Bank, or uh, TCD, or as it used to be known as SAMA, uh, have come a long way in, in, in developing uh, rules and regulations, and uh, they're using technology today that made it a lot easier. And, and, and I can tell you that the Saudi stock market is one of the most efficiently run stock markets uh, in the world. Uh, and I know some people think, okay, uh, Amr is Saudi Arabia and he's saying it for this, but no, honestly, I have, you know, I know a lot of stock markets around the world and I've seen where we have actually uh, uh, put in uh, technology uh, to good service uh, in really making it a very efficient market. The, the, other, the other point, I think, uh, is that there is uh, a lot of money looking for him for investment opportunities. And nothing is safer than to invest in, in, a, in an institutional form of investments. And the stock market provides that. And families, which is another point that just came to mind, uh, uh, is that uh, many family businesses, they don't want to sell their business, but maybe they want to sell part of it, and they don't want to sell it to an individual who's going to make their life uh, miserable. Uh, they, they, they sell it in the market, they cash uh, some money out of it, and they can put that to good use in other business. As you know, uh, the Crown Prince has, uh, has said that Saudi Arabia uh, is no longer going to be an oil-producing country, but an energy-producing country. 
But there's a big difference between the two meanings, which is basically uh, he wants to develop uh, businesses that move away from dependence on oil, but also uh, we're looking at uh, alternative uh, energy, uh, uh, more uh, fuel efficiency, uh, cleaner environment, and what have you. So there are lots of business opportunities, even for small and medium-sized companies, large companies and, and uh, mega companies to invest. And, and some of the families may want to release some funds that they can use to seed, uh, to seed it in, the, in those investments. That's an interesting point. Speaking to the efficiency of the stock market, things like the introduction of the NOMU, the secondary market, that is uh, uh, helping out these smaller businesses, some startups. I mean, Jahez is a unicorn now. It's a billion dollar, you know, value a billion dollars. And, and that, that's on the NOMU, which is not the, you know, not the main market. So, um, yeah, it's been interesting to watch. We've had segments on the 966 that have sort of traced the, the journey of the, the uh, uh, stock market in Saudi Arabia from the crash in 2006 uh, through the establishment of the Tadawo and, 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 and you know getting listed in MSCI emerging markets and then now going private you know it actually issuing you know Tadawo actually issuing its own, having its own IPO it's been a remarkable journey. Um, Lucian, what well, do you think? Well, I was going to just add to that. I mean, think about the the economic headwinds behind all this IPO activity. I mean, Richard, we were talking pretty late last night. Um, Judd was recent prediction for GDP of Saudi Arabia in 2022 is 7.7% growth. Um, I On the Judwell report, the only thing that I can see here that's higher is India at nine. But that's just, that is red hot growth. Um, so you have all of these headwinds behind it, which I think is very favorable for companies that are on the fence at this point. 2022 is going to be a big year. So Pretty interesting. Yeah, that um, general, general report was impressive, especially when they're when they're projecting their budget for next year, which is going to be over a trillion. We're projecting a, a surplus, a surplus of about thirty billion dollars, which would be quite quite remarkable. Well, and it buys time, right, for the economic diversification when oil is going up to, I think it's around ninety dollars a barrel. Uh, yeah. That's you know that helps a lot. Uh, they don't want it to help a lot, but it it does in the in the meantime. So. Richard, my one big thing, we'll pivot here. Um, the Saudi Ministry of Industry and Mineral Resources has opened the next stage of licensing for the Hanagia site, the largest Excellent. exploration site in the kingdom. Yes, I've managed to work on my pronunciations a little bit. Ex well done. <laughs> extensive exploration work has already been carried out at the Hanagia site, covering 100,000 square meters drilled and 3D geological models made. Um, the Saudi Geological Survey has confirmed the site's considerable geological potential of, of approximately 26 million tons of zinc and copper, both critical minerals for the global energy transition. This is really, really fa uh, fascinating, Richard. So they're now basically allowing this site to be bid upon by private enterprises. And that's where, uh, so this part of the whole privatization thing, just a, just a really interesting story. And Umar has uh, got incredible experience in this space. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I've been in the mining business uh, for 42 years uh, uh, with uh, mining gypsum, uh, first uh, national gypsum company, which my father was a co-founder uh, in 1958. Uh, and uh, I was just a child playing in the factory, uh, learning what gypsum is about as uh, as kid, you know, I, I, I would have at that time, I think I would have loved for my father to have a chocolate factory. 
I offered myself as a sampler uh, and, and get paid for uh, sampling the chocolates. <laughs> uh, but uh, mining uh, in the country has really, uh, the mining industry is a hidden treasure. It's the third biggest earner uh, for Saudi Arabia. Uh, uh, I recently attended a, a session with uh, uh, His Excellency Khaldun Befer, who is the Vice Minister for Mining and a good friend. Uh, and he, uh, he presented to us really the vision and the national mining plan for the country. And it's really amazing. And, and we, again, uh, we will be using technology already. We're using technology. People can apply for licenses to, to explore, to mine, uh, and, and to uh, get licenses for, for mining. Uh, all kinds of, of, of minerals. Uh, uh, my focus is more in industrial minerals, uh, uh, but there are lots of other uh, areas like uh, gold and silver and copper and lead and, you know, ash and ash soda and all kinds of, of, of possibilities. And this is going to fuel uh, industry as well. Uh, and that is why the mining sector uh, is, is supervised by the Ministry of Industry. And it's going to, uh, you know, uh, I think it will be a huge impetus to economic growth in the next uh, few years, uh, mark, mark my word. So, yes, uh, I, I believe it is, uh, it is our hidden wealth, uh, literally, it's underground. And uh, there are many ways of, of mining it. And I think uh, Saudi Arabia is going about it the right way by uh, getting the right expertise, uh, inviting the right kind of uh, people to invest. And they have developed the way to, you know, the mechanism by which you can get involved in this type of business. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic and, and uh, it's a very promising uh, industry. Uh, I think you were on that panel with uh, the vice chairman at the Future Minerals, recent Future Minerals Summit in Riyadh, right? I was supposed to be there. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it. Uh, I got sick, uh, unfortunately. That's what just happened. Uh, so I, did, I, I missed attending it, but I followed it uh, online, obviously. Well, uh, that, was, that, that was a big show with a lot of announcements in terms of the new mining laws. And I sit, I sit on the uh, uh, Gypsum Manufacturers uh, Committee, which is part of the Federation of, of uh, Saudi Chambers of Commerce and Industry, uh, which is based in Riyadh. Uh, and uh, we are in constant contact with the, uh, with the ministry. And, and the ministry is really uh, communicating with, with the private sector to find out what are the various challenges and issues and problems. And really through these discussions and workshops that we keep on holding with them, we are, uh, we are we're finding uh, really very good solutions uh, to resolve it, uh, whether it's in electric uh, power or the time it takes to get a mining license or uh, many different uh, problems, uh, and, and we are overcoming them through dialogue and, and uh, brainstorming and workshops. So it's, it's, it's great, it's, and it has to be 
this is really leading to a, a true uh, PPP, public-private uh, partnership um, between the public sector and the private sector. And it's not just a matter of asking the private sector come and dish out money uh, into projects. No, it's actually, let's think of what projects are feasible, uh, how would they work, uh, how can we participate in it, what's, what is your role, what is our role, and so forth. And, and this is, it's, it's coming and gelling together in a very nice way. I, I agree with you. We, oh, am I, uh, I am, you know, that in, National Industrial Development Plan, which has, is responsible for developing a number of sectors, industry, uh, you know, automotive, military, mining, energy, logistics, but like that, that mining sector, as you say, is, is really has tremendous potential. It's already a great revenue producer, I think, in 2020 at $26 billion in terms of revenue. Um, but it's it's I, what I didn't realize is is Saudi Arabia is the fourth largest net importer of minerals in the world. So there's a huge domestic market already. The Arabian Shield is extraordinarily rich. You know they've done these geological surveys. They've identified a lot of things. So not only I think will it be they want to double revenue by 2030, but I think it'll be a real uh, a genuine opportunity for foreign direct investment, which is another priority. And this is something where a foreign investor can see immediately that there's going to be an opportunity for returns as a better investment regime. A lot of these countries, a lot of these, you know, uh, global miners work in very hostile, difficult environments. It's good to come to Saudi Arabia where it's secure. They have good roads. You have a you know good investment strategy. I agree with you. It's just extremely promising. I think I think there is another point, if I may uh, uh, jump in here and tell you that it's also linked to another type of industry, which is very important. Uh, the mining industry will go in parallel with how you develop the transport uh, and logistic uh, service industry. So the, already the, the government is planning to build railways, uh, railway lines to be able to transport a lot of the mined uh, goods uh, and raw materials. Uh, and bring them to industrial uh, clusters where they can be uh, uh, processed and manufactured into products that can be either exported or, or sold uh, locally. So the logistics business is also another area where it is uh, showing phenomenal uh, growth, uh, and exponential growth, uh, uh, and, and and of all forms, uh, whether you are building warehouses, whether you're building uh, roads, or railways, or uh, developing uh, trucking, uh, all kinds of, of, of uh, services. And, and this is, again, linked to the insurance business. So, you know, a lot of them, that has to be, you know, a lot of potential uh, new business that is going to be available to insurance companies and, uh, and so forth. And so everything uh, kind of is linked to each other. And that is what the whole uh, uh, National Transformation Plan of Saudi Arabia, which comes from the Vision 2030, in order to come up with an action plan that can be implemented in order to make sure that that vision gets achieved by 2030. And it's all linked. It's linked to education. It's linked to training. It's linked to uh, legal, uh, uh, all of the... You know, we talked about the stock market. How are you going to protect the small investor? Uh, so there are uh, rules and regulations and, and what have you uh, in order to do that. 
in order to process the economic, you need uh, uh, legal contracts that can be honored and, and so forth. And today, I mean, if, if I have a court case, or even if I have to give up, you know, I could be sitting in Timbuktu, and uh, I can go online and give somebody a power of attorney in Saudi. Okay, uh, I can uh, uh, attend a court case, and I don't even need to go to the court physically. I can be sitting here as if I'm talking to you on Zoom. I can be there in a Zoom call with the, with the judge, with my opponent or the defendant, whatever, and we can sort it out and, and, uh, and, and talk it out and, and try to resolve it amicably if possible. And if not, then we depend on what the judge rules. So technology is changing uh, everything, uh, not just in Saudi Arabia, but all over the world specifically in Saudi Arabia, and we are pushing for it. And I think uh, the, the business of technological developments and, and automation uh, is, is another area of great growth that, that would attract uh, uh, local, uh, regional, and international investors, uh, foreign direct investors. Speaking of technology, we're hoping in a future episode to have someone from the Saudi uh, Data and AI Authority to talk about everything they're doing in data, but also the Tawakalna app, which has been uh, uh, transformative and, and, and really a tremendous tool in terms of battling the pandemic in, in Saudi Arabia. Something I wish we'd ha we had here. Definitely jealous yeah. of that. <laughs> Tawakalna, I think, is now accepted in several countries. Yeah. Uh, to prove that I am fully vaccinated. Uh, and I'm, by the way, I'm, I have, I've taken four vaccinations. Three okay. for COVID and one for the flu. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're like super protected. I, I more, more super, super vaccinated. Uh, but I just heard uh, yesterday, somebody was telling me that I can, you know, as a Saudi, having uh, uh, the Wakalna program, I can actually enter Bahrain. I don't need a passport or my ID or anything. I just use the alternative, which is an incredible uh, achievement. And I think if that experiment uh, succeeds, it will be all over the GCC. So we'll be going, uh, you know, all over the GCC just using our uh, application. Uh, Omar, I'm also quadruple vaccinated with the three and then the, and then the flu shot. I still got Omicron this winter over Christmas. Super, super vaxxed. <laughs> and, and, but, you know, that's the whole point. It was, it was honestly, uh, had I not tested, we were all going to, all, you know, all the, we were all going to go see my mother and so all the grandkids. And so it was going to be a lot of people around my grand. So we all tested. I tested positive. If I had not tested, I wouldn't have known. I mean, the symptoms were so mild. And that's the whole point. Yeah, it's, uh, we all pray and hope that uh, this thing will uh, fizzle out as it has, uh, as quickly as it has come in. Maybe hopefully we'll see it leave quickly. <laughs> and, uh, and if you look at history, I mean, uh, these kind of endemics, uh, or epidemics, uh, uh, they, they come and go. Uh, and uh, we can't do anything about it, can't worry about it. We just need to worry how we react to it. Uh, and I think uh, at least uh, my, our experience with Saudi Arabia, we've, been, we've, we've reacted very well to it. We immediately took very drastic actions uh, at the very beginning. And, and that's why our numbers have been very low. 
yes, we've had deaths, we've had people that got infected, but uh, but, the, but our numbers are a lot better than any uh, anywhere else around the world. Something to be proud of. I mean, the Bloomberg. Uh COVID resilience ranking just recently, I mean, uh, maybe a month ago came out and had Saudi Arabia's ranked number two. It's done a remarkable job. Under uh, less than 9,000 Saudis have died, which is an extraordinary number when you're talking about the size of that population. So you guys, Saudi Arabia should be quite pleased with how it's performed in, in, in this crisis. And that's another thing that that economists are citing as part of the headwinds behind the Saudi economy is how well positioned they are to, you know, in the post COVID world, which we're now kind of entering 2022. Um, it's just how well Saudi Arabia has done with with coronavirus all the way through um, mm-hmm. lockdowns. Um, I mean, canceling or, or scaling back the Hajj twice was an expensive decision. And I mean, you know, and a very tough decision to take. But, um, you know, safety first. So very interesting. Um, Richard, if we could move on now um, to our main segment, Absolutely. which is sort of going to be a conversation with Ummer um, and Richard, when speaking, you know, with a true renaissance man, it's best not to be tied down to just one topic. So we're going to sort of break <laughs> this segment down into two main parts, starting first with international relations. And then we'd like to talk a little bit more about the Saudi economy, Vision 2030 and a handful of sectors in the kingdom, as well as Ummer's business interests. Um, but so let's start with uh, let's start with global affairs here. Um Amr has been working with the Saudi Committee for International Trade, CIT. He was appointed by the late King Abdullah as the chief coordinator for the Saudi outreach program. Amr, I think a great place to start here is to talk a little bit about how Saudi foreign policy has evolved since the rise of King Salman and how the kingdom's position and influence in global affairs has grown. Uh, Okay, I mean, I can start with 9-11. That was a very sad day for, for all of us. Uh, and it's unfortunate that uh, lives were lost. The perpetrators of that uh, hideous uh, crime uh, had an intention of driving a wedge between uh, the, our two countries, uh, Saudi Arabia and the United States. Um, and, and really, they were a bunch of misfits who do not represent Saudi Arabia and do not represent uh, uh, our, our people in any way uh, or form. Uh, they hijacked our, our nationality, they hijacked our religion, and tarnished it uh, beyond imagination. Um, I think uh, at that time, uh, the whole population of Saudi Arabia rallied behind their king and, um, and basically volunteered to do whatever they can uh, to do it. I, I didn't do anything on my own. Committee uh, of International Trade uh, had more than 80 uh, men and women from Saudi Arabia from all kinds of fabrics of the society, from teachers to religious scholars to businessmen, businesswomen, uh, doctors, uh, all kinds of professions, educators, uh, from the academia, from the media, and so forth. And we, we uh, actually, uh, I think uh, after 9-11, uh, myself and uh, also uh, Mr. Abdullah Zainal, who was uh, the chairman of the, uh, uh, at the time it was called Council of the Saudi Chambers of Commerce and, Com- and Industry, uh, and uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Majid Al-Ghassabi, who was at the time Secretary General of the Gender Chamber of Commerce, Today, he's the Minister of Commerce uh, 
and Saudi Arabia. And, uh, and basically, uh, the three of us went to Washington, D.C. three months after 9-11. And we met with, with, with everybody. Uh, and and uh, I know Richard knows me. I'm, I'm very blunt and, and transparent. I speak my mind. We have a saying in Arabic. We say that uh, the, my heart is at the tip of my tongue. So <laughs> I speak what's, what's in my mind. Uh, I remember we met with an, an official at the State Department, and he said, don't ever dream that uh, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States will be the same. And I immediately retorted to him. I said, no, I don't want it to be the same. I want it to be better. Uh, the relationship was based on economic interests in the, uh, in the past. Today, it has to be uh, based on, on mutual respect and, and, uh, uh, and a true partnership, a true strategic partnership. Saudi Arabia can play a major role uh, in the Middle East. Uh, it's a leader in the Middle East and uh, can be of great help to, uh, to really partner with the United States as well as uh, we as Saudi Arabia will benefit from our partnership with with uh, with the United States, but it has to be strategic. And then from there, I went to to uh, New York and uh, met with New York Partnership. Uh, various people visited uh, Ground Zero, um, and just on a personal level, uh, my son was studying at Columbia at the time, and he lived in, in Rebecca. Uh, literally, he saw the second plane. Uh, crash into the building from his bedroom window. And, uh, and then he disappeared. And for three or four hours, his mother and I uh, uh, died and lived a few times, uh, worried sick about, uh, about him. Uh, thank God he, he survived that and uh, he graduated, uh, made us proud. So the, the relationship, uh, I mean, when we think of foreign policy of Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is a sovereign country. Um, we have our own identity, we have our own uh, culture, we have our own religion, and uh, we'd love to, to have great relationships with all over the world. But it has to be on a mutual respect basis. Uh, so, uh, and, and it has to be based on, on really strategic uh, partnership. So today, uh, we have a strategic partnership with the United States, but we also have strategic partnership with China, with India, with Japan, with many other countries around the world, as it should be. We are part of this globe, and we know that there could be uh, some difficult political uh, differences between countries, and even between us and other countries, but that should not prevent us from coexisting peacefully and try to respect each other and make sure that uh, Right people uh, are not deprived of their uh, human rights and, and abilities to, uh, to uh, live uh, peacefully and to be able to look after their families and children and make sure that they, their children are fed and educated at school uh, and, and, and live a safe life rather than, than be subjected to terror or any of that sort of thing. So, there could be a lot of collaborations politically. There could be a lot of collaborations economically. And today, uh, the, you know, the more that the United States uh, builds that 
political uh, strength and that political relationship with Saudi Arabia. Uh, obviously, uh, economically, it will benefit. Uh, jobs will be created in the United States. Uh, American companies would, would get uh, opportunities to come and invest and benefit from, from their investments in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is a fertile country, as we have been talking recently. So, uh, so that's, uh, and, and I think today, uh, you know, uh, King Salman uh, is, is ma making really uh, his mark on, on, on where Saudi Arabia wants to be. Uh, he, and, and it's all for the benefit of the people of Saudi Arabia, primarily, and uh, making sure that they have a decent life uh, and, and at the same time, uh, internationally to make Saudi Arabia be a, 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 an actor, an international actor uh, in the international uh, field and, and stage um, where we can push for uh, the right kind of policies that we believe in um, through dialogue, through these strategic partnerships. I don't know. I got carried away here. No. Uh, two, two, two questions, actually two observations, and, and I'd love your feedback. Looking to the past, you know, that post-9-11 period was, was so difficult, and you know I, I worked closely with CIT, and I got to know so many of your compatriots, Amr, you know, uh, true, and I call them patriots, Saudis who, who were just genuinely pained by this, and especially hurt uh, by how vilified Saudi Arabia uh, was at the time and for an extended period of time, especially these are Saudis who have a tremendous affinity for the United States. They, they live there, they work there, they study there, they're sending their kids there, you know, uh, and so it's very hard to, to, to feel the, uh, the, it was intense and negative and, and very difficult period. So uh, I know that was painful, but let's come to the modern day. And we see, look at the relationship, and this is one of my frustrations. We look at the relationship, and it's built on, on significant common interests. There's security common interests. There's energy common interests. There's, it's important to have a relationship with Saudi Arabia because it has such an influential role in the, in the Muslim world. Any number of reasons for, you know, uh, counterterrorism. The, the number of points where the U.S. and Saudi Arabia intersect and, ha and, and mutually benefit uh, are just many and varied. I, I really like for us, in terms of our, the U.S., our approach to Saudi Arabia to, to move beyond that and find ways to get more involved, invest in, support what's going on in Saudi Arabia, this tremendous effort to uh, diversify economically, this, uh, these, these goals to deal with the global energy conversion. Uh, these you know, the, this, this impetus, as you noted earlier, to move from oil to energy. Uh, and the, the social reform is extraordinary. So what I guess what I'm saying, and, I, and you can comment on this, maybe there's no comment to be made, I'd really like for us to expand our understanding of how we can be involved in Saudi Arabia. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be arms. It doesn't have to be managing the oil market. It can be, we can move beyond that. I'd like to see us move beyond that. I'm not seeing it at the moment. I think... I think that you know you don't only have one ambassador in Saudi Arabia. You have thousands, thousands of ambassadors in Saudi Arabia. People like me, 
you know, I went to Menlo College in California, I graduated from Yale University in 1979, that's 42 years ago, and uh, 43 years ago. And, uh, you know, uh, we believe in, in, in America, we believe in the American system, we believe in the Playfair uh, attitude. Uh, unfortunately, there have been times when you weren't playing fair, okay, to be honest. Uh, and, 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 and I think you need to think, rethink about that. How you, if you, America, want to be a player in the global world and be a leader, you have to play fair and you have to be transparent about it. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is a young country. I'm approaching my 70th birthday next October, just for your information. And I have lived through all the kings of Saudi King Abdelaziz, the founder of Saudi Arabia, died in 1953 when I was one year old. So, technically speaking, I lived one year in his reign. So, I lived through all the things, but that gives you a, a, a physical uh, sort of you know, vision of how young Saudi Arabia is. Trust me, I, I feel very young and I am young at heart. So, so we, you know, in, in the last 70 years, we have been developing, uh, we've been on a learning curve, we've been developing the country, and, and really the country has come uh, together now to be uh, a formidable uh, force and a country to be reckoned with. Uh, with tremendous opportunities, it's not just a wealthy country, it's a country where you can build wealth, and you can come and invest in this country and participate in that world. So it's the opportunities are there for people to come and invest here. The opportunities are there for people to come and live here. Um, Richard, you remember we had young students, American students, come and visit. Uh, we can we can do that again. Uh, we've had uh, political people, and and we are constantly receiving people from Europe, but less so from America. And, and I think this is, if you are asking the question, how can we do better? I think this is what we need to do. We need to really develop more people-to-people -people initiatives, uh, exchange students. Uh, I sit on the board of Effort University, which, was, which is an all-girls school, but they just received permission to accept boys, so it's going to be co <laughs> That ruins everything. <laughs> uh, I think the, the first few boys that join uh, the school are going to be extremely uh, overwhelmed. But uh, the, uh, I, I sit on the board of advisors, and we have exchange programs with American universities. Uh, and and uh, it's great. Uh, you know, students from, uh, from us go to American universities. You know, from America, they come here. And as you know, Richard, the, the, you know, for the first seven years after 9-11, I used to come on 9-11 every year, go to a, an American university and, and talk with, with uh, students uh, about Saudi Arabia, about Islam, about uh, uh, Arab uh, culture and so forth. And, you know, we recognize that we have so much in common between our people. And yet we do have some differences. And so... We all agreed, let's build on what we have in common and respect the differences. 
and that's that's really the successful formula for for a successful partnership between our two countries. Agreed. Um, please give my regards to Haifa Jamalaleh when you see her. She's done a remarkable job with Efat. Um, I'm, I'm sure with the help of uh, people like yourself. Um, I think that touches on it, and I think that's one of the. I just want to refer to to the Committee for International Trade. I think that's. I think there is no, and actually, what, part of what we're trying to do with the nine six six, there's simply no substitute for Saudis talking about Saudi Arabia and talking about, mm -hmm. uh, you know, their country. Saudi, talking about Saudi Arabia and also relations with the U.S. and elsewhere, and that's you know, nine six six. Increasingly, will will be trying to create a platform for these discussions. CIT over the decades, I mean, this was founded in the '80s, has always done this person to person. And there's no better representative. I remember when we do delegations, Amr, and we go someplace out in the hinterlands and maybe seeing a World Affairs Council or some civil society uh, organization and, and you know, some of the women that were on those delegations. And you know, these are private sector uh, men and women, really, really top flight professionals. I would never forewarn the hosts and say, well, you're going to hear this, you're going to hear that, because they were such tremendous representatives for themselves and for the country that it was, people would just go, oh my goodness, I didn't even know this existed. I didn't even know that, you know, that you could have these conversations. I didn't know these people, you know, all these, these things, eye-opening things that you get when you meet someone in person or you meet somebody virtually or, and so on and so forth. So uh, the work you've done over the years, Omar, uh, and that's why I say, I, I, you know, you've done it because you're a patriot. I just want to add, last last episode was it, Lucian? I was making the point that that you know Ibn Saud, uh, King Abdulaziz, died in 1953. Eisenhower was president. This is how recent Saudi Arabia is. Just trying to put it in context for Americans, who always seem you know there's always the instinct to think that countries are fully formed and they all agree with us. Well, they don't, and they're younger and they're on their own path, and that's part of the the journey of respect and understanding that we want to help out. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I was born in Abha, and as a child, I mean, women were not covered, they, they worked in the fields wearing the, their sombrero hats, uh, and they actually engaged in, in, in well, politics discussions with the men, they, they were mixing, you know. Of course, that changed, you know, when there was a, some uh, movement away from uh, moderate Islam, uh, as, as uh, our crown prince uh, uh, said a few years ago, that really we need to go back to moderate Islam uh, and, and, and really uh, adhere to Islam the right way. And I think this is where where the changes have come uh, recently. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, discussion and a, a very interesting debate to have. Uh, but at the end, of, the end of it is that, you know, we're human beings. Uh, we have to uh, carry on with our lives, improve our lives, build our families, build our uh, businesses, uh, and so forth, and in, in the process, participate in our uh, 
So, for example, uh, I was, you know, somebody said to me, ah, you know, you allowed women to drive in Saudi Arabia because the Americans uh, forced you to do. I said, no. The reason that uh, women uh, were allowed to drive is because of an economic reason. You have a woman who is, uh, and uh, we went in the, those delegations, uh, Richard, all of the years. Uh, whenever anybody asked me, I would turn to the ladies in, in our group to answer the questions. And they all answered the same thing. They said, driving is not our priority. Getting jobs, we want to get jobs, we want to be able to work, and that is what uh, is our priority is. Uh, getting a job and having to spend a third of your salary uh, to pay a driver or inconvenience uh, your, your father or your brother or your husband or your son to drive you uh, became uh, an economic burden. So by allowing women to drive, you remove that economic burden. And so they can drive to work, they can drive to school. As a result, a, a large number of foreign drivers have left the country since women were allowed to drive. And, and, and so it's... We have to look at it pragmatically and not make up stories. Yeah, obviously, absolutely. That was an economic imperative. You can't have half your population, you know, with these extraordinary obstacles just to get to work. I mean, even if you were a teacher, you know, a female teacher somewhere, you'd have to wait, you know, for a, a van to come pick up. So it'd take you an hour to get to work. And it, it was... It, it was a real problem, absolutely economic imperative. And I, I think one, you referenced uh, Amr, something I think is unseen and uh, not sufficiently um, appreciated, and that is the swing back. And you, you know, what you were referencing was the swing to the conservative to the right after 1979. And you know, it, to a it's type of Islam that you didn't grow up with, a different type of Islam. And the efforts now with King Salman and the Crown Prince to move it back to, you know, the moderate Islam, and to so, sort of undo some of that that severe move to the right. And how important this is to have that message coming out of Saudi Arabia because it's so influential that you know we, we need to we need to be more moderate, we need to be more inclusive, and and that's the type of Islam that we are trying to espouse and we're trying to live by. And and like you say, this is what you grew up with. Yeah, I mean, Islam is a, is a great religion. It's really, it's a, it's a code for how to live your life, uh, how to coexist with uh, your fellow human being, uh, how to be respectful to your neighbors, uh, you know, how do you bring up your children. It is, it's, it's, a, it's a how to live. Uh, the Quran is a how to live book. Uh, unfortunately, uh, during the uh, let's call it the foggy period, uh, the Quran was not interpreted correctly. There were a lot of uh, contradict uh, contradictory uh, fatwas and contradictory remarks and so forth. And, and this, uh, this has been put to bed. And, and today, the true Islam uh, and the moderate Islam is what is being uh, promoted in Saudi Arabia. And, and has made life uh, a lot easier for 
if we could move on now, because I think the economy is where we all agree, where sort of these soft power ties can be built between the US and Saudi Arabia. And and, and what we'd like to do here is start, uh, Amr, by talking a little bit about uh, Amkes Group um, and some of the sectors you're invested in and how your business has grown under the uh, Kingdom's Vision 2030 economic and social diversification plans that we were talking about earlier, I think would be really interesting for listeners. Uh, okay, I mean, uh, after I graduated in 1979, I worked for the family business um, for a few years. And then in 1983, I established uh, AMCAS Group, and AMCAS is, is uh, an acronym for Amr Mohammed Khashoggi Establishment. So, <laughs> and uh, in Arabic, it's still called Amr Khashoggi. Uh, company for trade, but uh, it's too long, Amcas is short. Um, and we have, uh, you know, in next year we'll celebrate 40 years uh, of our existence. And we have uh, gone into various businesses, uh, got out of it, moved into other businesses and so forth. So we, we, we uh, invested in, uh, in landscaping uh, business, with invested in transport uh, and so forth. But really the main, the main business that we always stuck with is building materials. And I mentioned mining and, and today part of the Amcas group is a company called uh, Global Gypsum uh, Company or 3G, uh, where we have a factory that manufactures gypsum in Yambo and we have mines. Uh, that, uh, we get our gypsum rock from hundred miles uh, up from Yamba on the Ombridge uh, Road, um, and and we trade in, in building materials, and that's the main the main business of ours. Um, like any Saudi company, we have to be in real estate somehow. So we, we you know we have developed commercial real estate and residential real estate, um, and uh, both here and abroad. And uh, recently. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've been in the technology business. Uh, I'm a certified computer instructor for <laughs> information. <laughs> Although I'm, I'm, I'm like uh, Richard speaking French, you know. Uh, <laughs> I forgot all about it. Uh, I don't know how to do, how to, do, how to train anymore. And technology has, has developed, uh, in, uh, you know, uh, light, light year speed uh, that I, I don't think I can catch up with. But uh, uh, basically, uh, we recently got into uh, partnership with uh, Pacific Green Technologies, which is an American company uh, that has uh, a partnership with Power China. Uh, and uh, they actually own 51% of that joint venture. And Power China owns 49%, something unheard of because Power China is a government-owned uh, company. Uh, but they they uh, they brought a lot of value to Power China uh, that they have accepted them to have the larger share. They also have a joint venture with uh, uh, Shanghai Electric, and they have offices uh, in China, in uh, Canada, in the UK, uh, Australia, and so forth, and Chile. You know, all over the world, and they have uh, in Saudi Arabia, in Jeddah, and Riyadh, in partnership with Ampes Group. Uh, we're the smaller shareholder uh, uh, that joint venture. And the joint venture, uh, 
yeah, I know that you know Pacific Green Technologies. They uh, they provide eight or nine different technologies uh, from solar uh, to uh, green hydrogen, green ammonia, uh, scrubbers, uh, all kinds of uh, business. So we took a look uh, at those technologies and we said, okay, uh, as the Arabic saying, uh, you eat grapes one grape at a time. So uh, let's uh, develop those, those steps. And uh, we decided to concentrate on the low-hanging food. So we're, we're focusing on the, uh, on the businesses that do not require too much uh, uh, technical and scientific Capabilities, let's put it that way, and where the opportunities are in, in Saudi Arabia. Now, as, as I said earlier, the Saudi uh, government has taken a decision to move more into, uh, from, a, from an oil producing country to an energy producing country. So it's not just about coming up with alternative energy or renewable energy, but also in making sure that the, the fuels that we have today uh, are, are uh, clean fuels. So we have the technology to clean those fuels and remove the sulfur from it and make it more uh, friendly to the environment. So that's also part, part of the whole exercise. How can Saudi Arabia reduce the carbon footprint uh, uh, and, and develop uh, technologies? Uh, and so so we, we, we are... Uh, part of several initiatives here where we uh, bring in our research and development capabilities in order to, uh, to have better, better clean energy. Let me take note there, and it's something I've always thought was remarkable about so many Saudi businessmen and women that I, I know. And that is, you know, you're partnering there with Pacific Green, a, a U.S. company, Shanghai Electric. I'm sure you do business in Europe and elsewhere. I mean, this is sort of par for the course for a good businessman in Saudi Arabia, and that's one of the interesting things about when you get to know them, how internationally savvy they are. And they don't, you don't have, Saudi Arabia doesn't have the huge domestic market that the U.S. does. So, so many American businessmen who, who you know, may or may not be global, they may be rich and all that, but they may just not work outside of the U.S. That's not how it works in Saudi from most companies that are of any size and scale, they're working in, the, to, to, in Asia and Europe and the U.S., Africa increasingly. So uh, it's fascinating to hear you talk about that. Uh, Lucia and I always talk about doing this podcast, how fun it is because we learn so much. And so when we did, I did a little dive into Pacific Green, and I guess one of the, when you talk about mitigating and, and reducing emissions, that sort of thing, one of their major businesses is marine scrubbers. And I, I don't know how deeply you'll be involved with that, but that was, you know, that's, again, as with so many things with the climate, it's an issue you didn't even know existed, you know, because these, these ocean-going vessels and container ships and that sort of thing are, are using bunker fuel, which is high in sulfur and huge emissions. And, but, you know, the marine scrubbers clean these up and reduce the emissions and are now mandated. It's a good business, it seems like, to be in. <clears throat> yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I mean... As you know, the uh, international maritime organizations, IMO, uh, they have very, you know, they always wanted to make sure that they have rules and regulations for ship owners in order to, to use the seas and oceans uh, and be friendly to those seas and oceans. Uh, 
so by using uh, high sulfur fuels uh, wasn't going to make them very uh, attractive. But the rules were not enforced uh, until recently. They have become stricter, and they're enforcing it. And many countries have uh, uh, kind of jumped on the wagon in a sense and are, are not allowing ship owners to bring in their ships into ports uh, of their countries uh, uh, if they are using uh, high sulfur fuels. So it became a necessity for them to use these sulfurs. Uh, Pacific Green Technologies is not the only uh, company that makes uh, rain scrubbers, but uh, they're one of the top five in the world. And uh, they, uh, they are talking to ship owners uh, Saudi Arabia as well uh, around the world. And they, they are already uh, have sold uh, hundreds of, of, uh, of scrubbers uh, all over the world. And hopefully uh, we will do the same uh, here. As you know, it's a process of introducing, educating, and testing and pilot with, uh, pilots uh, programs and so forth. And, uh, but I, I think uh, we will prevail and be successful in this business and it looks very promising. It's uh, an exciting time to be in this space. Are you, uh, um, if I may ask, are you guys doing any work with the National Renewable Energy Project Office for Saudi Arabia, REPTO? Yeah, of course you have to be. Uh, definitely we work with them, we work with Cast University as well, Cast, uh, with Saudi Aramco, so, uh, definitely with the Ministry of Energy. Uh, you know, we, we, we have decided that uh, Pacific Green and, and AMCAS to, to put our, uh, our hand, uh, the government's hand, and work shoulder to shoulder in terms of bringing the best in class uh, systems and projects and software and you, uh, in order to achieve uh, Saudi's vision that by 2050, we will have zero emission of carbon. Uh, and, and that is an aim that we have also put as a target. We have put it for ourselves and we're moving towards that target. Uh, yes, uh, the Saudi Green Initiative uh, and, and Saudi Aramco, I guess, 2050 and the country itself, but 2060, uh, the energy, the energy mix, and the transitions that are underway, and the transitions that are tended, uh, you know, intended all the way from renewables to uh, blue hydrogen and green hydrogen are, are remarkable. And we often comment that Saudi Arabia is especially interesting because they are expanding across the whole spectrum. In other words, they're not only they're expanding their crude capacity, capacity, crude production capacity. Uh, not only are they expanding their natural gas capacity. Their renewables, the clean energy, hydrogen, blue hydrogen, and as well as uh, nuclear. So they, you know, they're they're going, they're going aggressively to expand every element of that energy sector that you talked about, that energy spectrum. Obviously, in that, in the, with the intention of of developing technologies in terms of carbon capture and hydrogen and that sort of thing, that will help them be industry leaders. But it's really fascinating to watch a country very purposefully and, and uh, with intent go about trying to make this transition? Yeah, I mean, the government is putting everything they can behind 
developing this. Uh, as I said, it's two, two areas. One area is to make sure that whatever fuel, I mean, oil we know is not going to go anywhere for many years to come. I don't know how many years, but definitely this will be here for the next 50 years, uh, my, my view. Um, so to make sure that that fuel that goes out there is clean and, and, uh, and, and provides clean energy. Uh, and that's where scrubbers come in, for example. Uh, and, and the scrubbers are not only marine scrubbers, but you have also scrubbers you can put at the refineries. So whatever fuel comes out of the refinery is, is, is clean. And then the other one is, is coming up with alternative energies. Uh, whether you're using solar, you're using wind, you're using uh, thermal uh, energy, uh, whether you are uh, developing even, even wind energy, you know, we're working on, on developing wind energy that you put on boats. These are vertical uh, systems where they can actually lift uh, the boat and therefore they reduce the drag, which causes them to use less fuel. So <laughs> that's uh, another area we're working on. And uh, there are uh, sails you can also use and, and all kinds of, of technologies that are still in the development stage and not commercialized yet. But, uh, everybody's heading towards that. Uh, and, and, and you mentioned uh, green hydrogen, or blue hydrogen, differences where you are using uh, renewable energy to produce the, the hydrogen, in which case if it's green hydrogen, and if, if you don't use renewable energy and producing directly to hydrogen. And, and the same thing for ammonia. Um, so yes, Saudi Arabia is, is, has already made announcements of, of green hydrogen projects, uh, whether Neom or, or let's see uh, project. So, Definitely, we're moving in, in that direction. Um, and, and how you are going to be producing electricity uh, cheaply and efficiently is very important. Because, uh, you know, uh, power plants are, are, are somewhere, something where uh, a lot of uh, systems can, can help it in order to utilize the, the fuel more efficiently and I think this would be good for their environment. I think that um, if we could just ask one last question in this segment, I think Richard and I both very much want to know about this. Kaitarun, uh, Amar, is your nonprofit. It's a, it's a success story in Saudi Arabia. It's also an uplifting story. Could you tell us a little bit about the good work you're doing there and what's next? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I think Richard one time asked me, he said, Amr, are you retired? And I told him, no, I'm rewired. <laughs> so <laughs> what did I rewire into? I, I have uh, Salman Alireza, he's uh, my son-in-law, uh, he's the CEO of Amkes Group, so he takes care of the business and he runs it. And really, a lot of my time I spend on, on, on Qadirun. Now, Qadirun in Arabic, uh, uh, it means uh, we are able. Uh, so back in 2012, uh, at the time the Minister of Labor uh, said to me, "How can we, uh, how can we help 
people with disability to get jobs. What, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, there are examples of uh, around the world where they have been successful. Let's, let's learn what they can do and, 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 so, and, and figure it out. So uh, we, uh, he asked me to spearhead this effort. And so we went and we uh, uh, checked with the International Labour Organization, which is part of the United Nations, based in Geneva. We checked with the Business Disability Forum, BDF, in the UK. And we started learning what other uh, companies are doing. So we saw that the, in Saudi Arabia, there are uh, a lot of charities that help people with disability. Uh, from the time they are born, but when they reach the age of, of work, they don't know what to do with them. So we said that's where the problem is. That's the missing link. So we will address the missing link. So we founded the Badiroom Business Disability Network. It's an employer network. So our focus is on the, on the, on the companies, the small and uh, medium-sized enterprises, the large ones and the mega-sized companies, as well as public companies and, and uh, also non-profit organizations as well. And we started building, uh, you know, we launched it in, back in 2014. So for the last eight years, we started building, uh, building this organization as a non-profit uh, organization and, and as a, as a non-profit uh, uh, arm of, of ANCAS group. And, and basically, uh, we have done a lot of work. You can see it on, on our website. But uh, basically, the, our mission is to include and employ people with disability. And uh, every year, we come up with new initiatives, new ideas. So uh, we have uh, launched recently uh, a, a gateway a platform for uh, a career portal, uh, in a sense, specifically for people with disability. And we did it in partnership with Paid.com, who has a, a huge database of people uh, who look for jobs, but not specifically uh, people with disability. And we developed a, a program called Muama, uh, because unfortunately, before uh, anybody that uh, I mean, the government wanted to, to incentivize the, the private sector to employ people with disability, so they offered them that any Saudi you with disability that you hire would be counted as four. So it improves your solidarization percentage. But uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of it uh, turned into phantom employment. They give them some money and they say, stay at home and, uh, and don't come to work because they don't want them around. And uh, so we came up with, uh, with this Muama program which basically means Disability Compliance Index, uh, which we have adopted from the UK, and it has uh, like eight or nine uh, criteria. And we, we uh, convinced the Ministry of, of Human Resources to uh, adopt it uh, and, and to use it uh, that nobody gets the four to one incentive unless they have the certificate of Muama.
the Al-Qaeda role plays a role where we train and, and do workshops and awareness and so forth till we get to, uh, to the point where they actually then are tested by, uh, by, the, by the ministry and then are issued this, uh, the certificate of Moana. And once they have the certificate, then they get the four to one uh, ratio. So that, uh, and we've been very busy with that. Now we have also uh, started new initiatives in uh, um, uh, developing people with disability uh, by having this portal. Uh, and, and we have more than a thousand uh, uh, job seekers uh, on that portal. And we are helping, uh, you know, uh, the government now also to employ uh, people with disability as civil servants uh, in, in, in the 24 ministries that exist today. So there is, there is a lot that we are doing uh, and we have, I'm, I'm very proud of the team we have. Uh, we have Uhud Tarazun, she's the general manager of Qadirun and doing a fabulous job with, with a very uh, strong experience in the non-profit area. And uh, I'm officially the chairman, but unofficially, I'm just the coach. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and it's really uh, wonderful. We, you know, as, as the, the country is developing uh, sports events, uh, tourism, and what have you, we are participating uh, through a memorandum of understandings with the various government ministries and agencies and what have you to make sure that people with disability uh, get their, uh, you know, right, rightful attention. Uh, so for example, when we had the Formula One agenda, we had specific parking for people with disability and everything, all the, the paddocks and all the various uh, things were, were, were really compatible and, and compliant with, with the needs of people with disability. Just awesome, awesome stuff. Really awesome mission. Um, for our viewers and listeners, check out uh, Kaidarun online. Um, if you just, I, I think it's kaidarun.com, but if you just put it into Google, it's first and come up. It's a really, really great uh, success story and mission in Saudi Arabia. And Richard, we've talked a lot about social entrepreneurship recently. Um, we had a great conversation with Lena Almaina um, a few months ago, just sort of about this budding sector. So this is a really, really exciting um, enterprise. So thank you for sharing that with us, Amr. That's, that's really interesting. Let me add here, Amr, this is God's work. This mm -hmm. is really admirable. I have a, a special needs son who, you know, had a modified high school diploma, won't we'll, we'll ever go to college, um, has to get into the workplace. And, you know, these, what the, the Amr, the, the Disability Compliance Index is so important because even when it's mandated for private sector and we take out Sam and he applies for jobs and, and you know, the, the a company will have a policy, but the actual application of the policy is very mixed and often unsatisfying. And, and we've seen it across a number of companies who say, oh yes, we, we have X percent for uh, disability and we love to have them here. And, and in fact, that's not the case. And um, so what's your, but, but nonetheless, you know, you have a kid, you have millions of kids that you're, you know, you're working with or that are, can be constructive, really valuable members of the workforce and society that just need a point of entry, need the opportunity. 
And, uh, and, you know, and smart companies come to understand how valuable they are and come to understand what an asset they are. But not every company is a smart company. So anyway, what, what you're doing speaks very, uh, is close to my heart, very personal. So um, thank you. If, if, you look, uh, if you look at it from a statistical point of view, uh, in, in around 15% of the population on, on this earth are people with disability. Uh, we, we don't use the word special needs. We use the official word, which is people with disability. And I'll explain uh, that. In the United Nations, actually people with disability requested the United Nations to change from using special needs because they said a pregnant woman is special needs. Uh, an old man like me has special needs. Keep a walking stick or whatever, adults, but yeah. Um, but uh, they, uh, the reason that they wanted the word person with disability or job seeker with disability or employee with disability is that the person comes first, the disability comes second. So you first look at the person and the person has abilities. That's why we call the rule because they are able to work. And by the rule, we as employers are able to hire them. And, and by the rule is, is Q-A-D-E-R-O-O-N dot S-A. Uh, I'm, I'm doing some advertisement here. Basically, uh, uh, we, 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 we tell companies when you are interviewing, I mean, that's what we do. We create awareness. We say those people are not... Uh, you don't have to have sympathy for them and feel sorry for them because that's wrong uh, and insulting to, to tell you the truth. And at the same time, you don't have to consider them heroes because they have been able to, to do things in spite of their disability. That's also wrong. Uh, they are normal people who have normal abilities. So when you tell the companies, when you are interviewing those people, don't say, oh, you know, this disability, did you have it from birth? Uh, or was it due to an accident or whatever, you know? And the first 15 minutes or, or half an hour of the interview is a discussion about the disability. See, never mention the disability. Ask them, do you know accounting? Do you know English? Do you know uh, computers? Similar to the same questions you would ask a normal person, okay? Or a person who has no disability. And then once you... You, you finish the interview and you are convinced that that person is somebody you want to hire, you say, okay, we're glad to have you come and join us. What can we do to accommodate your disability? What services do you need? You need a lift, you need a bathroom to be of a certain size. You need, Of course, what we do during the first awareness is we make sure that the work environment is compatible with universal accessibility. Okay, so we are experts in this field and we bring people that take a look at, at uh, you know, a building being constructed or even a building, a building that has been constructed where they need to change the bathrooms or change the, you know, the, the desks to be a certain size or whatever. And, and a lot of people, when they think of disability, they just think of wheelchair users. So there are other disabilities of, of, that you need to think about, uh, sight, uh, you know, uh, 
disability, uh, hearing uh, impairment, uh, uh, speech impairment. But these can be accommodated by having somebody who knows sign language or uh, somebody that uh, you, you provide them with, with certain uh, areas that a blind person can actually walk in. And they have, and, and blind people have proved uh, uh, that they can work and they are great workers in, in for example, customer service. And then when you go into uh, what we call mental disability, like autism or Down syndrome or whatever, they can also work. I mean, you see today, you see in Hollywood, they're using them constantly in, 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 in films uh, and, and they act and, and, and they, they, are, they do well. But there is a way to, to manage uh, their disability. So somebody with autism can work in a, in a warehouse but you need to color code the, the boxes and tell him red is with red, blue is with blue. And they will continue to, to, to work until you tell them to stop. They will not even stop for a glass of water or they won't even stop for, to have lunch or, or take a break. So, you know, uh, th their sense of timing, something is different, but you just need to understand that and, and accommodate. We'll move on to our final segment, Yedla. Yella, yeah, in a minute, and I'll let you kick it off if you don't mind. We've got some really good ones this week. Um, it'll we, be great to get Amr's take on all of this. Will do, but uh, since we moved into the segment, I have one question. Amr, can you tell me about the picture behind you? Uh, on your no, wall? No, in yes. black and white. That's, yes. uh, that's a picture of my father. He, uh, he was the private physician to King Abdelaziz. Uh, uh, he graduated from the Sorbonne in Paris in 1932, came to Saudi, a poor man, and uh, uh, basically he uh, uh, established with uh, Mr. Jafali a partnership in Mecca <coughs> to, uh, <coughs> to, to uh, have a, an electricity generators uh, to power his X-ray machine and uh, and, and they supplied uh, lights for free to the Holy Mosque of Mecca, uh, but they financed it by selling uh, electricity to the shops around the, the Holy Mosque. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then he was uh, taken to, and then he went, he went to Riyadh and, and worked for the king. Uh, King Abdelaziz for 20 years uh, he passed away as his private position. So, uh, and then from there he went and established a business uh, like the National Gypsum Company and others. And, um, you know, uh, he keeps watching me. <laughs> over your, he's over your shoulder, yes. <laughs> um, Ayala, the first one, uh, the Saudi cabinet has approved a license for a local digital bank to be established with a capital of 440 million. The D360 bank will be established through a consortium of individual and corporate investors led by Duraya Financial Company, with the public investment fund being one of the main investors. With the newly issued license, the total number of licensed banks in the kingdom will reach 35, including 11 local banks, three local digital banks, and 21 foreign bank branches. This is according to uh, the central bank. 
very hot space in Saudi Arabia, fintech, especially recently. Amr, feel free to jump in. Yeah, I, I can't remember the last time I went uh, physically to a bank branch. Uh, everything is, is done online. Uh, I do it on my phone. Uh, I do it on my computer, my iPad. Uh, all my banking needs, uh, you know, I buy stock and sell stock. With, you know, everything is, is done digitally. And, uh, uh, you know, one, one other business we didn't really talk about that uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a growing business in the digital space, and that's uh, video games, digital games. And these are taking off in Saudi Arabia also. Uh, and you will see more of it uh, happen. Uh, I'm not involved in that space, but uh, I see it that because of my interest in uh, technology, I, uh, I follow it uh, just by reading about it. But again, I mean, there is no need for, for uh, even, even, even businesses, normal businesses today, post-COVID-19, uh, more people say, why do we need all these offices and pay rent for thousands of square feet or square meters, whatever, uh, when we can have people work online, when we can, I can have people work in my company and provide me with services from all over the world. Uh, they don't even have to be physically in Saudi Arabia. So it, it has changed the way that we do business. Uh, and technology is, is really... Uh, disrupting the technology. I mean, uh, definitely it has changed the whole thing. So again, banks today, they say, why should we have offices? We can live on digital banking. And let's get a license to do digital banking. And I think it's, it will be very successful, extremely successful. There you go. This is one of those things. This is the silver lining of of the COVID pandemic. Uh, you know, it, it the the Vision twenty thirty goals of digitizing and techno technological, introducing these kinds of e commerce uh, options. It was just turbocharged. I think I read the other day that um, something like eighteen hundred ATMs have been removed in the last uh, quarter because people aren't going to get cash. You know, they're not needed as much. Just like you said, you don't need storefronts when you can do so much uh, virtually or, or or digitally. So it's 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 interesting to watch the transformation. It's interesting to watch it really accelerate like it has over the last year and a half. Richard, I only carry cash to tip. I don't carry cash. I even use my my phone uh, to pay uh, with Apple Pay or whatever. Or right. STC Pay. I can transfer money, STC pay, I can pay people. Right. STC pay. Uh, so, you know, I, I really don't need to, to carry cash. I don't even carry my wallet anymore. For my ID is in Tawakkalna. So I, I, everything is on my phone. If I lose my phone, I'm in real trouble. <laughs> so I have to make sure I don't lose it. <laughs> What's your Saudi? You have multiple phones. <laughs> I only have one phone. Was oh, that right? <laughs> 
<laughs> you must be the only Saudi then with only one. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, I also haven't carried cash in like six months. And um, this is a great segue to our next topic. Uh, but I only used to carry cash to, to tip at golf courses. And now I don't. <laughs> I, use, I use Venmo, which is great. Topic two, Golf Saudi has attained a full member status of the European Disabled Golf Association, EDGA, as part of its efforts to promote the sport for all players in Saudi Arabia. The news was re- revealed during the Saudi International Tournament by Majid Al-Sarur, CEO of Golf Saudi and the Saudi Golf Federation, who said its membership in EDGA would enhance the accessibility of golf in Saudi Arabia. Amr, I understand that you were the first member at the Royal Greens uh, club where the Saudi International is played every year. Saudi golf is really hot right now, globally. Uh, just, I mean, dominating headlines every week. So very interesting story here and good for golf Saudi. Yeah, uh, I think, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a golf addict. So <laughs> yeah. uh, please come back and join us every week then. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> we love golf. I, I love, I love the game. Uh, and, uh, unfortunately I missed the last, uh, the last international event because I had to go to a family wedding in Dubai. Uh, over that same weekend, and, uh, and so I missed it entirely. But uh, but I did play uh, last Tuesday, and I'm going to play next Tuesday, which is our foundation day. Uh, we and so we took the day off. Uh, but so uh, with regarding to uh, Edja, uh, I think it's a great initiative, uh, uh, and it's something that Badirun. Uh, has been in discussion with Golf Saudi, how we can even promote hiring people uh, with disability in the various golf courses that are being built by Golf Saudi. So it's, it's a great initiative. And also to, you know, we work with the uh, Saudi Paralympics. So uh, again, uh, it, it is very important that we, we give everybody the same opportunities. Uh, to play golf, to play basketball, to play football, to play tennis. Uh, uh, and if they have a disability, it doesn't mean that they can't play. They can still play and they can enjoy it. So, uh, and, and there are lots of examples worldwide uh, where that is happening. Uh, so it's not just accommodating them at, at sports events and making sure that they have certain areas um, where they can go there and, and, and watch uh, the competitions or what have you, but also to, to participate as players uh, and so forth. Um, the previous uh, Saudi internationals have played, I think, in every, uh, every pro-am uh, competition, including the ladies, and we have the next one in March. So I'm, I'm trying <laughs> to prepare myself to, to play there, and it's, it's fantastic. Uh, my wife is still puzzled by why I should play with ladies, but uh, that's another match. <laughs> Especially if they're good and they beat you. But hey, uh, you are you still doing your regular trip? You have a whole uh, big group of uh, friends that you you do an annual golf outing, right? Yeah, we have a, a group called the Four Players. And, uh, <laughs> you know, four. <laughs> no, I, we got it. But <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, we're, we're six Saudis and six Americans, uh, and we've been together for many, many years now, I don't know, 20 years or something. And um, 
our next outing, we're going to St. Andrews, uh, Scotland, on uh, July 18th, the 25th, a week of golf. So we'll watch, we will watch the Open um, uh, at St. Andrews, uh, and then the next day we go and start playing the various courses around there. We've done it a few times, done Scotland a few times, Ireland a few times, uh, we've played in Spain, we've played in, uh, in South Africa. Uh, we're still trying to uh, make the trip to America uh, and, and play, but America is so big and wide, you know, to try to find a place where there are several courses so we can uh, and, and to be able to get access to it. It's not easy. So uh, one day we will do, uh, we will do the U.S. Well, I have, I have a board here which you can't see. Um, uh, that has the top 100 courses and you will see some gold pegs and these are the courses I played. Uh, awesome. It's, it's difficult to really uh, say that this is absolutely my favorite. Each course has a different flavor uh, that I... Uh, so, for example, Old Head in, in Ireland where was, was fantastic. Uh, very difficult course, very windy around there, so you really have to Content with the wind. Uh, Barbados, they have the Green Monkey uh, there. It's fantastic in Sandy Lane and uh, uh, it's wonderful. You have in France, you have, you know, in the US, they have some, you know, beautiful courses, uh, of course. Um, maybe, maybe too manicured for my uh, uh, gardening, I mean, golfing skills. <laughs> well, you're doing you're doing it properly. The way I do it is completely in, inappropriate. I'm hoping to get out this weekend with some friends on the local municipal. It'll be 40 degrees. The golf will be horrible. The course, of course, will be cold and windy. But it's still golf with friends, so it's good. Well, this is. Uh, I mean, a lot of people don't know. You know, they think okay, golf is. You know, you're wasting a whole day of golf. Uh, you're going there, playing for four hours, and you know you need an hour to get there, an hour to get back, and so that's six hours. And if you stop for lunch, that's you know, it's it's an eight-hour <laughs> day. Uh, but they forget that you know you 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 go there with friends, and so you're bonding with those friends, and and the amount of business that that you can actually pick up uh, on these golf courses is incredible. Mm -hmm. You know, you meet somebody, you play with them, and the next day, you know, it's uh, you're, you're talking about a business deal or a business uh, opportunity. So, again, uh, it, it is part of uh, part of the course, the really. um, course of business as well as the course of golf. Next time you go well, to someday. Washington, bring bring those golf clubs. We'll uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have well, a lot no. of fun. <laughs> someday yeah, we're yeah. gonna. Someday we'll we'll. With rentals, I don't know. Yeah. I'll bring my golf bag, my golf bag. My golf, uh, golf. <laughs> uh, at Lucian, as, as uh, you know, a, a regular theme on our podcast is we're shilling for 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 swag and that sort of thing. So someday we'll get on Royal Greens. Someday we'll get a Lucid, and I think there's something else we're shooting for. I, I'm sure. Oh yes, um, a, <laughs> a Richard, 
Um, Richard Mille. Richard Mille watch. Yeah, we've got a list of potential <laughs> sponsors here. We just got to reach out to them. They're just um, not interested in us. <laughs> I'm, I'm in a different boat than Richard. Um, I live really close to a great golf course, but I have two children under the age of two right now. They're uh, 15, 14 months apart. And they may have made a few guest appearances on the podcast. I don't even know. But uh, my ability to play golf is basically plummeted. So jealous of you guys. Uh, um, Richard, let's move on to... Oh, sorry. This is yours. Uh, yeah, this is three. mine. Number three, NADEC, the country's leading agricultural and food processing company, one of the largest in the Middle East and North Africa, has announced that its solar energy project is now commercially operational. The solar PV park was developed as a part of a 25-year corporate power purchase agreement between Nadek and French energy company Angie, the first of its kind in the country. The facility is roughly equivalent to 21 football pitches, has a capacity of 30 megawatts, and is expected to lower, car lower carbon emissions by 53 million kilograms per year. Thought it was interesting simply because this is a private sector effort to, to you know, generate renewable energy. And uh, obviously, Saudi Arabia has r remarkable plans otherwise. Uh, but uh, interesting story. And uh, if I can, I can jump, jump in with just a couple of quick thoughts. One is that uh, the, uh, the cost of renewable energy, uh, like solar, uh, has, has dropped significantly. That it has become, has become feasible for uh, farms and uh, agricultural companies to use uh, solar energy uh, instead of uh, putting pressure on, uh, on the, the national grid. Uh, so that's that's a good thing. The second thing, which is very important, that I would recommend recommend it for a future uh, episode uh, where you talk about, which is food security. Uh, you know, uh, with, with, uh, with international disruptions, the uh, supply chain disruptions that have existed due, due to COVID and other other reasons, uh, like the ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal, or whatever, uh, these have created shortages uh, in food supplies. And so uh, a lot of, of, of countries are moving to how can we ensure that that doesn't happen to us. How can we ensure food security? And, and one way to do it is to develop farms here, uh, develop uh, irrigation methods, uh, and, and learn from, from other countries and other companies that have had success in, uh, in areas where it is uh, challenges uh, in growing uh, food products in added uh, Locations such as desert uh, areas and so forth. So, this is a, a, an area to keep an eye on uh, for sure. Interesting. So no, number four, Richard, moving forward, <clears throat> this girl is on fire, fresh off her sold out concert at Mariah Concert Hall in Al-Ula. Singer songwriter Alicia Keys joined Saudi ambassador to the United States, Princess Rima bint Bandar Al Saud, and a group of other creative women in an intimate conversation under the theme Women to Women. The off-the-record dialogue hosted by Good Intentions, a newly launched Saudi-based creative consultancy, was held in a town hall style where audience members asked questions, made comments, and interacted with the panel. Uh, Princess Rima is a friend of ours, Richard, and this is a really cool story. And we were sort of emailing back and forth about this new creative, uh, creative consultancy, Good Intentions, which is fascinating. But um, 
Just a really good uh, story here and a photo that really describes how Saudi Arabia has changed and evolved. Um, so check this out. This was a story from Arab News. I think, uh, I think al, al, al Ula is, uh, is an area also to keep an eye on because they are developing it rapidly. Uh, they had that event in Al Ula, which, uh, as, as I'm not a woman, I couldn't attend it uh, and I participated in it. Uh, but I think my sister did, and she enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, and, but also, there is a great art exhibition taking place at the moment. Uh, uh, I have a group of friends who are planning to go next month to Al-Ula, which I haven't been in a while. So that would be a, a, an eye-opening and a relaxing uh, uh, three days that we're going for uh, to explore and, and learn and, and discover. And one thing that uh, another benefit of COVID-19 is for a lot of Saudis, they got the opportunity because they couldn't travel abroad, is to travel in the country and discover their country. Uh, I've been to places I haven't been, like Al-Baha, down by the south. I was born in Al-Baha, but I haven't been there since I, since I left when I was four years old. But uh, Al-Baha was wonderful uh, experience to go there and see, the, you know, they, they have honey, they have... Uh, uh, coffee beans, uh, uh, lovely, beautiful, uh, beautiful mountains and, and, and uh, escalades and what have you. Uh, so it's, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, the country is so varied uh, that, that really discover your country is a great program for any son. Yeah, domestic tourism has just exploded, and the, and, and, and the venues now, I mean, the combinations are improved, Every, things are uh, more uh, organized in many ways, but a place like Alula is just extraordinary what they've done, not only the, the exhibits, I think Desert X is there now, the second Desert X or the first Desert X, but you know a place is culturally interesting when they have, you know, weekly flights from Paris now to Alula. <laughs> <laughs> no, they had the uh, the polo match uh, recently as well. Yeah, yeah, we, with, we got, with our future sponsor, yeah, Richard Mille. Richard Mille, yeah, and their one point three million dollar watches. I get you know, <laughs> goodbye, goodbye, I, you know, Apple Watch Five. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, uh, five on Sunday, four percent of Saudi Ramco shares worth eighty billion were transferred to the kingdom's public investment fund, which is taking the lead in efforts to transform the Saudi's economy and diversify away, diversify away from oil revenues. The Saudi state remains the largest shareholder in Saudi Ramco after the transfer, with more than ninety-four percent of the company's shares held. The shares transfer is expected to help the PIF achieve its goal of growing assets uh, under management uh, to over $1 trillion by the end of 2025. Yeah, Elmer, if you listen to this podcast, you know that PIF is everywhere all the time. Um, you know, it, it's a unique, unique entity, you know, manages external investments, is also driving internal investments meant to support and catalyze the economic diversification and growth. This is a general question. Uh, and I'm sure attitudes are very are varied, but uh, how is the PIF generally perceived in the Saudi business community? I think uh, if you look at investments, you've got, um, first of all, you've got short-term investments, 
medium-term investments and long-term investments. And uh, you have early stage and you've got uh, middle stage and later stage. And each one is has an associated with it certain risks. So there are projects where the private sector either does not have the resources or they don't have the appetite and they are risk averse, uh, but they would like to jump in maybe at middle stage or later stage. So EIF has played a, a very important role in, in developing the, the uh, uh, really the economy and, and investing in areas where uh, they kicked it off, whether it's something like the Lucid uh, project in Cape or wherever they're going to put it. I think it's going to be Cape. Um, and where the majority of those electric cars are going to be exported uh, and, and a portion will remain in the country. Uh, in building a lot of infrastructure projects, uh, whether you're talking mega projects like Neom or Red Sea or Amala or Idea or any of those uh, projects. Uh, so they are uh, the investment arm of, of the government today, uh, being the sovereign fund. And the investments they're doing outside are always aimed with how can we bring the technology back to Saudi? How can we benefit Saudi uh, in, in, uh, in that way? So uh, you know, uh, I think it, it plays a very important role, and I think it is perceived very positively by, uh, by the private sector and by, by people in general. Uh, I love what they're doing uh, myself personally, and I know a lot of people who are involved in it. Uh, and and really, uh, they're also creating jobs, uh, and not only that, they're training people the right way. Uh, so even if they decide not to stay with PIF, they're great candidates who, who work in, in private sector companies uh, and, and help develop it and lead it, uh, promote it. So there are lots of, of, of benefits for us. I think one criticism that uh, some had about this move of money is that uh, it sort of dings the PIF's green credentials, because now it owns 4% of the world's largest oil company. Um, but uh, very interesting. And uh, they're, they're about to do a green bond, I believe, the PIF. Um, Richard, I, I believe. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, Unless I wasn't just making that up. But yes, no, no, no. Unless... <laughs> interesting timing with respect to that. Um, but uh, yeah, very fascinating. Uh, number five, for centuries, millions of Saxol trees, commonly known by their Arabic name Al-Khrata, provided firewood, animal feed, and respite from the desert heat for the Bedouin forefathers of mo modern Saudis. Planting Saxol trees is now part of a green initiative by the Saudi government aimed at reducing carbon emissions, pollution, and land degradation. 250,000 of the drought-resistant trees will be planted this year in the central Qasim region. The region, uh, excuse me, the kingdom aims to plant 10 billion trees in the coming decades, as well as work with other Arab states to plant an additional 40 billion trees across the Middle East. Richard, we talked a little bit about this last week with David Rundell. We couldn't quite believe the number 10 billion trees. That's a lot of trees, um, but very, very interesting story here. 
Saudi is basically just saying, let's start working on our local climate here and let's get a lot of these trees in the ground. It looks like the Saxel tree is perfect um, for this. I, I, it was that number is huge, 10 billion. And actually, I, I, I saw a note that said if it takes 20 years to plant 10 billion trees, that means they have to plant around 1.5 million trees a day, which, as we've said before, the numbers are always aspirational. Saudi Arabia is very good at this, but the, the direction is what's important. And I think Saudi Arabia has made a point all along with regard to this global energy uh, conversion, uh, the one they made to CLP 26 and, and, and have made over and over. It said, all right, this is not just about, you know, you know quickly replacing uh, crude with renewables. This is about a whole number of tools to uh, address carbon capture and reducing emissions. And it can be it can be carbon capture, it can be planting trees, it can be any number of things that, that contribute. So let's uh, use everything in the toolbox, let's not just you know, vilify oil uh, and, and think that's the answer to everything. This is, this is part of that. And that's a lot of trees, uh, but you know, planting trees is, has shown to be an important means to, to capture carbon. So uh, it's a good it's a good initiative. I, I, that the the Saxol tree, I, I, you, I'm sure you know it. It's not a particularly attractive tree, Elmer. No, uh, no, it, it, it isn't. But uh, I have a couple of comments about this. One is that we live in a desert uh, country, and the desert has been encroaching continuously. So to stop that movement, uh, you've got to stop it with, with trees, no matter how ugly or how pretty they are. Uh, secondly, uh, greenery uh, is the oxygen of, of any of, of the planets, really. And uh, thirdly, uh, technology has, has changed a lot. And, and our understanding of climatic uh, uh, dynamics uh, has shown that uh, through planting trees, uh, you can actually reduce uh, the heat by one or two degrees, uh, you can create more humidity, which will create more rain, more, uh, you know, irrigation. And that, that would uh, kind of help to change the uh, topography of the, of the country from a desert to a semi-desert and maybe hopefully to fertile uh, areas. Uh, and then we can have rivers and we can have all kinds of things. And, and so, the technology itself over the last few years has changed a lot in, in this area and we're learning from it and we're bringing this uh, knowledge and, the, and that technology to help us uh, do this and today uh, i know that you know when you think a million and a half trees as, as you remember i told you my early days uh, when i first started ancus group we were in the landscaping business so i know a little bit about this uh, you know, it's no longer you bring a tree and you plant it by hand. And so today there are special machines that come and they can plant uh, a hundred uh, trees uh, in a, you know, in, in, in a couple, you know, five minutes or 10 minutes or uh, an hour. But, and the more, you know, and you can use machinery and automation in planting those trees uh, fairly quickly. And maybe it is achievable. I don't know. Uh, I haven't really gone into the specifics, but I can imagine with today's technology and equipment and tools uh, and processes, it, it, it could be achievable. And again, 
let's say you reach eight billion. That's still remarkable. And uh, interesting, Ministry of Environment, the Minister of Environment said, has said that no groundwater or water produced in fossil fuel-powered desalination plants would be used to irrigate the trees. The project will rely on treated water and renewable water resources such as uh, rainwater, seawater, and cloud seeding. You're talking about technology, Elmer, you know, uh, different ways. We think about the environment benefit that uh, untreated uh, water, instead of pumping it into the sea and, and polluting the sea, you use it for uh, irrigating these, these trees, which are happy to have it because uh, it, it's not un untreated water specifically as much as it's not, it's not uh, water that you can drink, but the, the trees would love it because it's full of nutrients. Uh, no, so it's a it's a double benefit here. Uh, you're you're protecting the seas from dumping it in the seas, and you're uh, you're, you're using it to uh, to irrigate these trees. I mean, if anybody can do it, it'll be Saudi 